Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Laura Harris-Hills, and I am pleased to be here today again with Nick Frederick, one of my favorite people to interview and talk to about biblical studies. We're going to talk today about the book of Revelation, no S, in the New Testament and Latter-day Saint scripture. Nick, what have you been doing since the last time I interviewed you? Teaching here at BYU, working on my regular stuff, looking at the connections between the Book of Mormon and the Bible and Doctrine and Covenants in the Bible, working on a paper on the daughter of Jared from Ether Chapter 8, writing a couple papers on DNC 93 uh, that'll be coming out soon. So that's been where most of my work is. When we analyze the Book of Revelation, I'm going to break it into two parts, the historical analysis in its first century context and then it's theological projects. So let's first talk about what scholars have proposed as the first century historical meaning of the metaphors in the book of Revelation. I think you can't read the book of Revelation without seeing the first century there. I mean, the problems that are highlighted, persecution, assimilation, complacency, right? These are issues that the first century church is absolutely dealing with. And this is what's highlighted in that second and third chapter which, by the way, I should mention that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic, but it's also epistolary, right? We have letters there. It's also prophetic in nature, so it's kind of a mixed hybrid genre. And these letters are important because they, they show us what the church is dealing with. So persecution, complacency, assimilation, which, by the way, are issues we have today, right? Which is perhaps a reason why the book of Revelation matters to us, um, has kind of a current relevance, but... Yeah, it's, it's hard not to see the whore, Babylon, in Revelation 17 as anything other than Rome, right? She's literally seated upon seven hills. And so there's things like this throughout the text. You see the dragon and his associates to kind of give them a first century context. The lamb, obviously, is, is Jesus Christ, you know, and his elevation to heaven after the resurrection. Uh, so there's very much a first century context here. But in, when it comes to interpretation, this is one of the, the major controversies surrounding the book of Revelation, is what perspective people take. And so on one hand, there's what's called the historicist viewpoint, which is that the book of Revelation is simply just history being revealed through symbols, right, the different stages of the earth. You have the preterist viewpoint, which is that the book of Revelation is a first century text and should be understood as a first century text. Futurists who will argue that the book of Revelation is all about the future. It needs to be read in that way. And then the last viewpoint, which is my actual perspective on this, is what's called the idealist viewpoint, which is that the book of Revelation has a story to tell. And it's a story that could apply to any age. And that's the story of God intervening for his people amongst the, the evil forces that oppress them. And so most people will take what's called the eclectic perspective, which is they'll be a little bit idealist, a little bit preterist, a little bit futurist, which is probably what I am. I'm probably a mixture of the three. Very rarely will you find anybody who takes one specific viewpoint. And that's why this book is so hard for people to discuss, is because is it about the future? Is it about the past? Is it, complete, is it just a, um, a story, uh, an allegorical account of how God interacts with his people? Is it a play-by-play of history? And this is where a lot of the disagreements and a lot of the tension comes when it comes to the book of Revelation. I think the safest perspective is to say, yeah, all of those are fair. Yeah, there is a first century context, but you know what? It's also about the future. And you know what? It also has a story to tell. And I, I, I think the more we can familiarize ourselves with the different approaches, and we'll find even as Latter-day Saints that we think we have just a, a perspective on the book. And yeah, it just makes sense we realize, well, that's because we're taking each of those four views, even if we don't realize we're taking each of those four views. So maybe just to give you an example, um, Revelation 6, uh, we see the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the first one is this white horse that, that comes out. 
And so historicists would say, well, the white horse represents the age after the destruction of, the Jerus of Jerusalem or something like that. It represents a specific point in time. A preterist who wants to locate it to the first century and keep it in the first century will say perhaps it represents the emperor Vespasian, right, who reigns in Rome from 69 to 79. Um, it's his son Titus who conquers and sacks Jerusalem. A futurist would say, well, no, no, it's the, it represents the antichrist that's going to come at a future age and something that hasn't happened yet. And an idealist would say it represents the spirit of conquest that haunts humanity in any age, right? And so you have multiple possible interpretations for any one symbol. Now multiply that by every symbol in the book of Revelation, and you can see why this becomes such a difficult book to have a conversation about. Oh, I can imagine. As you were giving that example, I thought, now nah, it truly illustrates how confusing New Testament scholarship can yes. be too. Especially with <laughs> this book. I can imagine a academic conference where four people stand up and give papers on the same verses and interpret them four different ways. Yeah. And then you just leave the room confused. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Our conversation today is going to follow some of the things you've written in two book chapters. The first is The Paradoxical Lamb and the Christology of John's Apocalypse. Where can we find this chapter? You can find that chapter. That was the uh, Sperry Symposium from 2018. Great. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then later we're going to talk about the New Testament and the Doctrine and Covenants. That's chapter 41 from Lincoln Blumel's new edited anthology on New Testament culture, history, and society. And I'll put a link to that as well. I found your treatment totally fascinating and something worth studying, something relevant. So let's talk about how you looked at the metaphors in the book of Revelation and its theological project. How is Jesus symbolized in the book? Well, so, so let me just begin more broadly perhaps with what I see as kind of the overall theological project. Um, and then we can focus specifically on, on the Lamb. But I see two kind of broad things happening. Uh, the first is that the book of Revelation kind of serves as a, a wake-up call, right, against complacency. Those who would say all is well in Zion, there's nothing to worry about. Uh, John's coming out saying, look, behind the scenes, evil is very real. And you can see that. Uh, so on one hand, the origins of evil, it's reality. But on the other hand, the flip side of that is the sovereignty of God, right, and the hope that comes through Jesus' conquest of that evil. Both those things are very, very present. So uh, again, just for an example, uh, Revelation 8 through 11 is, forms this kind of really nice story. 8 and 9 is where all the wacky things, like the giant locusts and things like that happen. And whenever anybody wants to say that like, there's, there's a war in the Middle East that's prophesied in the book of Revelation or something, it's usually from 8 or 9. What you get is these, these really violent, crazy scenes that scare a lot of people. Uh, but you have to read to 10 and 11 as well. By the time you get to Revelation chapter 11, you have this scene that stands in contrast to 8 and 9. 8 and 9 is about all the people who wouldn't repent and all the bad stuff that happens to them. And we're kind of left with this idea that God is going to just destroy everybody in a really visceral, graphic, terrible way. Then you get to 11 and we're told there's these two witnesses. And uh, they stand up and they preach and they're then they're killed, then they're raised up again. And what we find is that because these two witnesses preached through their efforts, right, and these two witnesses represent the church as a whole, the kingdom, something like that, I don't think they're two individual people. I think it's the membership of the church as a whole uh, in any dispensation. But because of that... Oh my gosh, are you kidding? What? That just breaks it all down. Weren't there supposed to be two two missionaries who went to Israel and we're all waiting and, for those and that's, again, that to happen? That's how we talk about us Latter-day Saints because DNC 77 says yeah. that and Elder McConkie kind of promoted that. And so we have all this speculation about which two apostles you know, are going to be the ones that die. And to me, it, that, that's, that doesn't make as much sense in the context of 8, 9, 10, and 11 right, where you have the, what changes things, what changes people. Threat of justice doesn't change people. If God threatens judgment, people still aren't going to repent. But what chapter 11 tells us is when the two witnesses stand up, when you actually get up and witness to what you believe, 
That's what changes people. That's what averts God's judgment. And rather than nine-tenths of the population being destroyed, which is what was going to happen, only one-tenth of the population is destroyed. And so what you have here is hope comes through people standing up and expressing what they believe. And that's going to do more to bring um, a positive impact. That's going to do more to spread God's plan across you know, the nations than the threat of judgment will. That's what I see as kind of this, this call to action the book of Revelation is making. Get out there, believers, Christians, disciples, whoever you are, get out there and, and make your thoughts known because that will have more of an impact than God sitting out there saying, repent or be destroyed. Ultimately, then, I think the theological project of this book, you can summarize in two words, which is Jesus wins, right? There's, there's no doubt from the very beginning, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the very end, uh, this is all in God's hand. God is in complete control. And so you've got to figure out what side you're on, right? Knowing that God's going to win, do you want to be one of these people who get left out? Uh, one of the people who won't repent? One of the people who are going to be complacent or are going to be happy being assimilated into the world? Or are you going to be one of the ones who will stand up and show the mark on your forehead, right? To demonstrate who you are as a disciple. Uh, I, I don't see this as a code book, where these symbols need to be broken down and analyzed. You know, some people will say, well, it's in code because John didn't want Rome to know he was talking about them and things like that. But if that's the case, lamb isn't very subtle, right? Uh, whore Babylon isn't very subtle. And so I, I, I see this, this is about hope. This is not about fear. This is about letting people know God is in charge and that if they choose to follow him, if they choose to put his mark on their forehead, then everything's going to be okay. And we talk about this text as if it's scary, you know, as if it's this uh, just full of punishments and crazy things, but it, what gets lost is, is the hope that's in, runs through every chapter. That's what we should be focusing on, which takes us to this, this lamb, right, that shows up in, in chapter 5. So in chapter 4, uh, John, a door opens in heaven, right, and John finds himself in the throne room of God. And he sees 24 elders, he sees four beasts before the throne of God. And then in chapter 5, God holds out a, a, a scroll in his right hand and says, who's worthy to open this, this, this book, this scroll? And John gets, seems to be getting a little bit anxious. He's looking around. No one's coming forward to, to open the scroll. Then he starts to hear that the, the lion of the tribe of Judah right, is going to come and, and be worthy to open this book. And so John turns around looking for a lion, right? Looking for this majestic beast. Instead, what he sees is a lamb, which is the primary way Jesus is identified throughout this book. I mean, he's mentioned in chapter 1 as Jesus, and he comes out as the king of kings in chapter 19. But in between, he is this diminutive little lamb. And that's what John sees. This is where the historical interpretation becomes important. How is the lamb that's portrayed in this book atypical in Christian literature? In the Hebrew Bible, the lamb appears predominantly in a sacrificial context, right? The lamb is a burnt offering. In the New Testament, specifically in the Gospel of John, we see John the Baptist refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. In the Book of Mormon, which loves to take the, the rhetoric of the book of Revelation and run with it, Lamb or Lamb of God appear over 50 times. And so by the time you get to, to Jesus, you're expecting when you hear that he's a lamb, you're expecting perhaps something specific. But then you, you, we have to deal with this issue of why a lamb and how is this lamb atypical, right? Because you expect a lamb to demonstrate certain virtues, certain characteristics, right? They're diminutive, they're passive, they're followers. Is that what this Jesus is going to be? And the answer is going to be absolutely not, right? He's both victim and leader. Uh, he is both conquered and conqueror, right? By the time we're done, we have a lamb standing in judgment. And so th this, this image of the lamb seems to be kind of set there to give us one expectation of who the Messiah is. But then we, we see it broken down as the narrative unfolds. More than one lamb is portrayed in the book of Revelation. 
there are several different lambs and they have different symbolism. Let's start with the conquering paradoxical lamb. How's that portrayed and what concern, what historical concern was it meant to address? Yeah, so as, as I read this, it seems to be looking on one hand at the Jewish expectation or confusion over what the Messiah was going to be, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah seems to be what some of the Jews, not all the Jews, but some of the Jews are expecting, uh, this kind of Davidic ruler who's going to come and throw off the shackles of the Romans. And what you get is this diminutive bloody lamb. I mean, the salvation of Israel is not going to be by this regal figure. It's by a bloody lamb. And there's pathos in that as you, you have to be, you step back and recognize, I mean, a, a lion you could see, a lion you can follow. You can get behind a lion. But a, a bloody, diminutive, small lamb, you point to that and say, that's where my salvation is going to come. That's what ultimately is going to save me, right, is a conquered lamb. And that's, that conquered lamb is going to turn around and be the conqueror. That, again, I think kind of forces us to reconfigure her expectations about deliverance, about salvation. And I think it suggests something ultimately, a theme we're going to see, I think, through the book of Revelation, it suggests something ultimately about grace. Not only can I not do anything for myself, but my salvation is going to come from this small, bloody lamb. And I've got to somehow come to terms with that. What is some of the imagery that is used in the text to portray this? Well, on one hand, the lamb has seven horns, um, which is, again, curious because horns are usually associated with rams, not little sheep. The lamb also has seven eyes. And so, depending, again, upon how you want to make an interpretation here, horns could represent power um, and authority. Eyes could represent wisdom, foresight. And so, again, things we're not used to associate with the lamb, power, wisdom, perhaps the, the capability for leadership, the capability to be able to guide people through a difficult situation. Those are curious attributes to be given to a lamb. To the reader, it's probably obvious that the author focused upon the lambs conquering through death to take the first century Christians back to the crucifixion. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. I think so. I think that's fair. One of the distinctions I think is important for John to make here is that Jesus doesn't conquer death like we would expect Jesus to do. It's almost as if Jesus is conquered by death. And so in Revelation 5, these 24 elders that surround the throne of God, they begin to praise the Lamb, but they single out specifically that the Lamb is worthy to take the book out of, or the scroll out of the right hand of God because he was slain and has redeemed us by his blood. There's no mention of Jesus resurrected. There's no mention he conquers death. His worth is tied specifically to his bloody death, that he conquers through death. It's, it's his vulnerability and his sacrifice that are being highlighted here. And I think, again, this forces us as readers to ask the question, if, if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to be followers of the Lamb, are we expected to have that same mindset? That is that same vulnerability and willingness to sacrifice the qualities that we're supposed to emulate. Great insights. Those are timeless comments on what it means to be a Christian. What is the redemptive lamb that John describes in Revelation 7? In Revelation 5, we were kind of introduced to this, this lamb who conquers by being conquered, right? So this vulnerability or victory that comes through vulnerability. In Revelation 7, this is kind of expanded to what the blood of the Lamb does. And so we see in Revelation 7, John sees 144,000 individuals, we're told 12,000 from each tribe, they're all dressed in white. And John is told that these are people who've come out of tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And again, we're supposed to step back from this, I think, and, and see this doesn't quite make sense. You don't make something white by washing it in blood, right? Blood stains something red. It doesn't make something white. And so there's, again, something curious at work here. I think we're supposed to see that it doesn't work this way for us. We can't wash ourselves through our blood, right? It, it, again, this, this emphasis on I just, on I had to interrupt you. That is so great. I, have, I had never thought of it that way. 
And it's all about grace. That is, who would have thought the book of Revelation talked about grace? Grace and hope all the way through the book. <laughs> that is wonderful. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a weird image, though, again, right? I mean, it's you're cleansing through an act of violence. A lamb is slain, and that's what makes you white, right? It's not what you do. It's what this happens to this lamb, but then what this lamb extends to you. He makes you white. Love it. What is the parodied lamb? In Revelation 12, we're introduced to this dragon, right, that represents Rome, represents the powers of the world, what have you, and Babylon. And in Revelation 13, we see that this, this dragon has two associates. There's a beast that comes from the sea, and there's a beast that comes from the land. And the beast from the sea in particular has qualities that seem to mimic uh, this true lamb we've been following, this, this picture of Jesus. But this, this parodied lamb, this, this beast from the sea, receives power and authority from the dragon, just as Jesus receives power and authority from his father. This beast is mortally wounded to the point where he should be dead, but miraculously he's healed, right? just as Jesus was mortally wounded, but is healed, raised up. And this causes people to marvel after this beast, much as people marvel and admire after Jesus. And so you see this kind of, whatever you want to call it, a parodied lamb, kind of a false Christ or an antichrist, but this image that's being set up to mimic the true lamb. And that's how, that's how the dragon is going to, to act. I mean, the, the dragon's vice region is a slain and living beast in contrast to Jesus, who is the slain and living lamb. And so the moral of the story, again, is we need to look carefully. Right? Just because something from a distance may look like we understand what it is, we have to look closer and make sure we truly see and know what we're looking at. How could Jesus, as a lamb, a small creature, be a providing lamb? Yeah, this is another really, I think, nice image uh, in the book of Revelation. So as we get closer and closer to the end, Revelation 19, right? Typically, sheep need a shepherd to provide for them and protect them. That's what a shepherd is supposed to do. Sheep don't provide and protect others. It doesn't work that way. Yet in Revelation 19, we witness the union of the lamb as a bridegroom meeting his bride. It's a wonderful moment as Jesus, who faithfully served as a lamb, who followed his own shepherd, the father, now assumes the role of our shepherd. Right? He is the bridegroom to the church. He will provide and protect for us just as the shepherd provided and protects his sheep. Lovely. That fits so well with Latter-day Saint theology. How does the revelation of the Lamb speak to the relationship between Jesus the Christ and God the Father? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that one of the thematic similarities between the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John is this, this unity of Father and Son. Right? Jesus says, I only, I only do what I see my Father do. The Father and I are one. And so you kind of have this weird passage in Revelation 22 where we're told that the Lamb and Father share one throne and form one temple. Uh, They've become so unified that a singular pronoun can now refer accurately to both of them. This paradox that the book of Revelation has been advancing, right, with these different, the Lamb taking on different characteristics and things not making sense isn't resolved with the defeat of the dragon by Jesus, right? There's not a nice, tidy bow that you can wrap on the end of the book of Revelation. Um, A lot of the questions that haunt Christian theologians, how can two deities be one? How can they share one throne, right? How can they form one temple? These are Christological questions that have captivated theologians for 2,000 years. And the book of Revelation, again, it's a riddle that the book of Revelation kind of throws out there and says, chew on this, see if you can solve it. And people have done that for nearly 2,000 years. They've definitely done their best. From this vision, what do we learn are some of the characteristics of the Messiah, this lamb who's going to die for us? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the most obvious ones is this unity with the Father, right? If the book of Revelation is about the sovereignty of God, that God is in complete control, the Messiah is going to be one with him. The Father's plan, the Father's motivations are going to be the same as the sons. The Messiah is going to have a high degree of power and knowledge, right? Seven horns, seven eyes. Uh, he's a warrior figure, right? He comes with a, you know, a vestige dri- dripped in blood on a white horse. He conquers the world, 
right? He has a sword coming out of his mouth that he uses to conquer. So there's definitely this warrior imagery when he's finally unveiled as king of king and lord of lords in Revelation 19. He's the rightful ruler of the earth. He's unchallengeable. I mean, you know, the battle of Armageddon is hyped in the book of Revelation, right? We're told that there's going to be this great battle between the, the dragon and the lamb. And then in Revelation 19, Jesus shows up and the battle's over. He just takes the dragon, gets rid of him, takes the beasts, gets rid of them. There is no actual battle. And so it makes it very clear that this is Jesus's realm. He is here to rule. He is the rightful ruler of the earth. Is this a unique picture? I don't know if it's necessarily a unique picture. I think that you can piece this together from the way that Paul talks about Jesus, a lot of his Christology in, say, Philippians and Colossians. Uh, you can see those elements there. But it's, this is the most, I think, graphic description of it. I mean, we actually have a battle that happens, but it's not like a battle that we're expecting, right? All this time it's been hyped up as something, and then Jesus just shows up and it's over. Revelation's message seems to be one specifically of submission and trust. God is in control. Jesus submitted to the Father's will. He trusted the Father. He became the shepherd. Will we make the same choice? When this world offers us everything we could possibly want, when the world seems like it's just too scary and evil and dreadful, will we trust that God is in control, that his hand is over all things, and submit ourselves to him, take his seal on our forehead, wash our clothes in his blood, it's ultimately about the crisis of decision, and I think other texts bring this up, but I can't think of any text that brings this up as squarely and in your face as the book of Revelation does. One insight you had that I thought was just fascinating was that you said that Jesus was one with the Father, not because of his parentage, but rather because of his behavior. How did you come to that conclusion? I think based upon the Gospel of John, right, the Gospel of John suggests that Jesus is doing what he saw his father do, uh, that there's, a, there's an element of following behavior in that. But in, in the book of Revelation, right, Jesus, the lamb, is, he is the lamb. He, does what the father, the shepherd, wants him to do. He goes where he's supposed to go. He does what he's supposed to do. He does that because he's the lamb. He's the lamb of the father, and then he turns around and becomes a shepherd to us, right? And so there's this, there is very much this sense that the oneness comes from Jesus's own decisions, Jesus's own actions, right? The choices, the, the crisis of decision that he makes, right, is to be one with the father, and again, if, if, if we want to be disciples of Jesus, if we want to have his image in our countenance, we must make the decision to be one with him, which the book of Revelation, you do that by putting his seal on your forehead. You, you do it by going out there and being the witness to what Jesus can do. That's just beautiful, Nick. We could stop there, but we're not going to, because you wrote another wonderful chapter for Lincoln Blue Mill's book called The New Testament and the Doctrine and Covenants. Let's move on to another aspect of the interpretation of the book of Revelation, and that is Joseph Smith's affinity for it. He loved it. He, Tell us he about it. He loves the book of Revelation. I mean, there are, Joseph obviously loves a lot of books. From the Bible, but he seems to really, really enjoy the book of Revelation. I think for a number of different reasons that we can talk about as we work our way through here. But again, uh, the book of Revelation is all over the Book of Mormon, it's all over the Doctrine of Covenants, it's all over Joseph's sermons. He devotes a section of the DNC just to the book of Revelation. Just a couple weeks before his death, in June of 1844, he gives one of his most famous sermons, which is known as the Sermon at the Grove where he gets up and he reads Revelation 3, then quotes Revelation 1-6 and does an entire discourse on just a few words from Revelation 1-6. I mean, it's, from beginning to end, the book of Revelation seems to have, have really resonated with Joseph. He's almost, he's almost enamored with the book. So Joseph Smith used the book of Revelation in his 
teachings and in the Doctrine and Covenants as he was recording his revelations. We call that intertextuality. And we have done an entire podcast yes, we have. together on that topic. But can you briefly remind listeners the meaning of that term? Yeah, this is, again, another one of those terms like uh, apocalypticism that a lot of people throw around but is a little bit difficult to define. But essentially, it's how do two texts interact with one another. If you have, say, statements from the Bible that appear in the Book of Mormon, how do you evaluate those? What does it say about authorship? What does it say about meaning? Can you interpret the new context based upon the old context? Uh, Maybe just to give a, a broader picture. You look at something like uh, Virgil's Aeneid, which borrows from the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer and just kind of transforms them from a couple of Greek narratives into a Roman patriotic epic. Uh, Then you have, you know, James Joyce, who takes the Odyssey and uses it in his, you know, work Ulysses, and it becomes a completely new book, but it's built upon the framework and echoes and allusions to previous work. Um, And so intertextuality deals with what's the significance of that? What meaning can we draw out of that? Is there significance in that? How do you identify uh, when a work is referring to another work? The Doctrine and Covenants clearly adopted the language of the New Testament and adapted it into a 19th century religious context, specifically Latter-day Saint. So there is complex intertextuality there, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, the Book of Mormon does this, too. The language is kind of a King James rhetoric, but there's hundreds, if not thousands, of allusions to the New Testament, to the Old Testament, all the way through the Book of Mormon and all the way through the Doctrine and Covenants. And one of our challenges is, you know, in studying this is not just simply to identify where those allusions are, you know, and try to figure out what they're alluding to, but what is the meaning behind it? Why borrow that specific phrase? You know, then, then Joseph does this in a really interesting way. He rarely will just take a phrase or a passage and put it wholesale into the DNC or the, or the Book of Mormon. There's always a few words that are changed. Maybe the order of a few words is changed. Maybe some words are put in between a couple of phrases. And so it feels very, very organic. It doesn't stand out. It's a wonderful interweaving of biblical text into modern scripture. Or even just the concepts. Yeah, absolutely. You're a numbers person. Usually you include a chart at the back of your articles where you've numbered little references to what you've discussed in the article. You've done that for the references, the intertextuality in the DNC. Which New Testament books are referenced most? This is interesting because this is actually true for the Book of Mormon as well as this for the DNC. But in both the Book of Mormon and the DNC, Matthew is cited the most. And then second is the Book of Revelation. And third is the Gospel of John. And then as far as specifically on the DNC, Hebrews shows up a fair amount. And 1 Corinthians shows up a fair amount. And those are kind of the five that show up the most. There's a couple that don't show up at all. Philemon doesn't show up. Second Thessalonians doesn't show up. Jude actually shows up quite a bit. It's always interesting to see which ones show up and which ones don't, and which verses show up and which other verses don't. But yeah, it's Matthew, Revelation, and John for both the Book of Mormon and the DNC. The Book of Revelation gets 65 verses that are referenced. So let's use the remainder of our time to go over those verses in the DNC, which employ the most language from the Book of Revelation. And they're mostly found in DNC 29, 76, 77, and 88. What are the themes of DNC 29? Yeah, so DNC 29 is this fascinating revelation. You're going along in the DNC, and it's very kind of practical up until this point. You know, here's the constitution of the church. Here's what to do with people who are, you know, already been baptized and you want to rebaptize them. You know, Emma Smith put together a hymn book. Then you hit 29, and it's this stunning eschatological text really centered around agency and how agency affects the fate of humanity at the resurrection and the judgment. Uh, The millennium is imminent. The gathering of Israel is commencing, right? Joseph had already received Moses 1 by this point, right, in fall of 1830. 
uh, when, when Section 29 is, is received. But this really, to me, is kind of his coming out as a biblical prophet, right? It's, it's like reading Isaiah or reading Jeremiah when you read DNC 29. So you mentioned eschatology, which means basically end-time theology. Right, study right? of the end times, so the eschaton. How does Joseph Smith use Revelation imagery, which we just went over, to portray Latter-day Saint eschatology? Yeah, and so maybe just to contextualize this, Joseph Smith is far from the only one to do this. Uh, the book of Revelation really influences a lot of the primary religious founders, movers in the 19th century. Alexander Campbell puts passages from Revelation 14 with his periodical Millennial Harbinger. Right? The same verses we use, another son of another angel flying in the midst of heaven. The same verses we do to kind of talk about the restoration Alexander Campbell used in his publication. William Miller, founder of the Millerites, relied mostly on Daniel, but did use the book of Revelation a little bit in calculating the day of the second coming, right, in 1844. But it's what happens in the wake of the Great Disappointment when Jesus doesn't arrive in 1844. One of Miller's followers, Ellen White, uses Revelation 11 to reorient William Miller's calculation and to say that, well, maybe, maybe Jesus cleansed the heavenly sanctuary, but not the earthly sanctuary. And so this is, of course, she's the founder of Seventh-day Adventists, who come about because of this reorientation. And by the way, the belief that uh, Sabbath should be on Saturday rather than Sunday, they use Revelation 13 to back this up, right? Those who worship on Sunday, it's the mark of the beast. Uh, then um, Charles T. Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, recalculates Miller's numbers using the book of Revelation to come up with 1914. One of his followers met 1925, a little bit later. But the you know, 144,000, the elect, right, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, promote, comes from Revelation 7. And so Joseph Smith is far from the only one who really kind of digs into the book of Revelation. It seems like a lot of religious figures are looking to that text. He's playing in the same stream. But Joseph is really the only one who kind of rewrites the book of Revelation, as you see from sections like DNC 29. So in DNC 29, uh, he uses the signs of the sixth seal, these seven signs from the sixth seal in Revelation 6. Joseph uses those to describe the second coming. He uses imagery from Revelation to describe the fate of the wicked. Uh, the source of wickedness on the earth is the great and abominable church, described as the whore of all the earth, alluding to among other things, Revelation 17. Uh, he discusses the millennial earth, the dead rising from their graves. There's a section on the new heaven and the new earth from Revelation 21. Details on the fall of Satan using Revelation 12 that we talked about earlier. It's almost like there's, it's a 30-second highlight video of major book of Revelation events kind of hit us in DNC 29. So Joseph's taken these very powerful images and saying, okay, there, here's how they fit. I'm rewriting them, restructuring them for a 19th century audience. Oh, I love that. Plus, he's like, okay, you've heard it from all these other people. Yeah. This is my take on it. I think that's part of it. I think he recognizes how much potency the book of Revelation has because it's being used by others around him, and it will continue to be used by others later. But he, he wants to get his own interpretation of that out there because the book of Revelation has power. It has a pull on people. If you were to ask any Latter-day Saint, what is DNC 76 about? They would say the three degrees of glory. But you maintain there's a lot more to that section than we typically think about. Well, so the impetus of DNC 76, right, is this question about the resurrection, which is taken from Joseph Smith's study of John chapter 5, right, which is about the resurrection. And so it's, it's this concern with the resurrection, how and when the resurrection is going to happen, what it's going to look like, that moves Joseph on this. But what's interesting to me is before the vision really begins, he and Sidney see the holy angels who stand before the throne worshiping God and the Lamb. And so it's almost as if he is reenacting Revelation 4 and 5. He's standing where John the Revelator stood. What we then get with the rest of DNC 76 is a recapitulation of events from the book of Revelation just talked about in perhaps more pragmatic terms, celestial, terrestrial, celestial kingdoms. 
But where the uh, book of Revelation, the language of the book of Revelation plays a key role in 76 is on the fate of, again, Satan and his followers. You know, Satan and his minions, the punishment of the wicked, all that language is borrowed straight from the book of Revelation. That's some great insight. We talked earlier about the book of Revelation being in the air in the 19th century when Joseph Smith was preaching and established the church. DNC 77 is a Q&A on meanings of the imagery in the Book of Mormon. How does it go against contemporary analysis of the text? Looking at Joseph Smith versus perhaps how people read the Book of Revelation today, Joseph gives a very pragmatic reading Book of Revelation. Um, I like to say he, he demystifies the Book of Revelation. He has kind of concrete answers for things. Its history is very realistically portrayed in the book of Revelation. And so maybe just to give you a couple of places where Joseph perhaps parts ways with how modern scholars would read it. And we have to remember, DNC 77 is, only goes through chapter 11. So we only have half of the book of Revelation before Joseph moved on to other projects. And it's also worth noting that Joseph doesn't include DNC 77 in the 1833 Book of Commandments or the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. It's not until 1876 that Brigham Young puts it in the DNC, so it's kind of hard to know how Joseph wanted us to interpret the Book of Revelation. DNC 77, when you look at kind of the Q&A that Joseph does there, there's a couple really big ones that stand out to me as far as Joseph kind of diverging from modern scholarship, or modern scholarship diverging from Joseph Smith, however you want to look at it. But the first is the seven seals that appear on the scroll that the Lamb opens. And Joseph looks at those seven seals and says these are seven distinct thousand-year historical periods. And so all the way up till today, we still talk about the earth as being 7,000 years old. The Adam and Eve perhaps are 4,000 B.C. and we're at the end of the 6,000th year right now or something like that. That really doesn't work as far as the book of Revelation goes, um, partly because you have three sets of seven in the book of Revelation. You have seven seals and seven trumpets and then seven bowls. And they seem to be kind of be recapitulations of the judgments that are going to come upon the earth. So it's hard to see the seven seals as acting so differently from the trumpets and the, the bowls that come later. And the second one, I would say, we've kind of hinted at this earlier, but these two witnesses in Revelation 11, there's this kind of fascination amongst Latter-day Saints for these being two actual people, two apostles who are going to travel to Jerusalem, who are going to be killed, who are going to lie dead in the streets, and then who are going to be resurrected. And again, when you read chapter 11, it doesn't really fit that these are actual individuals. It seems pretty clear that what's being talked about is the church as a whole. That's the, the church people being unified, the membership, however you want to look at it. It's when they do their job as witnesses. It might be hard, they might suffer, but ultimately God will vindicate them. That seems to be the point of those two witnesses, that the witnesses can do what God can't with his threats of judgment, which is bring repentance. Joseph's answers to this are very pragmatic. There are periods of time, there are two actual people, but I don't know how well those really work within the context of the book of Revelation itself. Hiram M. Smith made the comment that DNC 77 is not an interpretation, but it's a key, right? It's enough to get you into the house, but you have to do the interpretive work yourself. One of the problems I see a lot with Latter-day Saint commentaries and statements on the book of Revelation is that we just kind of plug in the answers from DNC 77 and say, well, here's the interpretation. I don't know if that's what Joseph wants us to get. I wonder if, if, these, if this is in fact a key we should be building on that more than just assuming this is the interpretation. Would you say that scholars nowadays maybe take a more nuanced view? Yeah, I would say absolutely. Especially, I mean, the historicist viewpoint that, that we're actually dealing with periods of concrete time here, that's really fallen out of favor. Most of your scholars today are going to be, one, they're going to be preterists. And two, they tend to be idealists. They tend to see the book of Revelation telling a story uh, and I think most of them would agree that John does have a sense of the future in this. Those are kind of the three, this kind of eclectic merging of perspectives that's at work here. This, this historicist one really hasn't carried a lot of weight, really, for, for quite a while. Joseph generally approached 
scripture from a historicist point of view, which was typical in the 19th century, don't you think? I think so. I don't think he's doing, I mean, he's not misreading the text. He's not necessarily doing anything that was out of sorts for what would happen in the 19th century. He's trying to make sense of a text that he thinks has clues. You know, you look at someone like William Miller, who's taking apocalyptic literature and taking numbers and using that to calculate the exact day Jesus is going to return. In my mind, that's a little bit far-fetched. That's going way beyond perhaps what Joseph's doing. I, I like Joseph's reading. I think Joseph presents a, a, an interesting reading of the book of Revelation. I just don't think it needs to be the only reading of the book of Revelation. I think Joseph shows that. I mean, when he comes back to the book of Revelation later in Nauvoo, he's reading it differently then than he does in 1832 when DNC 77 is received. And it's telling that he didn't include it in the Doctrine and Covenants himself. Yeah, and that it was never finished, right? It ends with Revelation chapter 11. I mean, there's, there's another revelation right after this. Um, it's what's on the pure language document that is also in Q&A form that was never included in the DNC. And so I, I don't know if Joseph ever meant either of those documents to be anything more than a pragmatic, scholarly, academic approach to try to understand how scripture works. And so short of, of knowing more specifically what Joseph thought and the process behind kind of the Q&A of DNC 77, again, I, I would say as Latter-day Saints, we, we use that, and I think that would need to be part of the interpretation, but it doesn't need to be the only interpretation. Let's go over the last section that uses the book of Revelation. What does DNC 88 attempt to do? Yeah, this, as Richard Bushman eloquently put it, right, DNC 88 is a cohesive compound of cosmology and eschatology. Oh, right? wow. It, isn't, isn't that, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's Richard, right? Okay, he's, there you go. just fantastic at, at those, that kind of descriptive rhetoric. DNC 88 tries to kind of quantify the universe, uh, make it relatable to each person living on Earth, kind of this blueprint of the unknown world, right, that's out there. What does the universe look like if we could pull it back and just show a blueprint? And so specifically, when you get to the end, 88, 92 to 95, specifically borrows from the book of Revelation to describe some of the events that will precede the second coming. Angels flying through heaven, Babylon drunk on the wine of the wrath of her fornication, silence in heaven for half an hour. All these are drawn from the book of Revelation, and, and they become this eschatological kind of blueprint right there in DNC 88. So I, I guess what we see in, in these sections in the DNC, when you look at 29 and 76, 77, 88, and maybe on some of these other smaller places where we see the book of Revelation, is Joseph Smith taking older texts and kind of giving them a new form, a new context, a new direction. And I find this really fascinating because that's what the book of Revelation does. There's 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and there's at least 275 allusions to Old Testament texts like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, but they're never overtly obvious appropriations of the Old Testament. They're very carefully woven into the book of Revelation in a way that feels organic. And so when I read the Book of Mormon or I read the Revelations in the DNC, and I see how Restoration Scripture weaves biblical texts and recontextualizes them, what I'm reminded most of is Revelation, right? They share a very similar style and mode of intertextuality, uh, something I think really needs to be explored further. I love that. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. My I pleasure. love these articles. I learned so much about the book of Revelation. It came to life to me, and it, it was pertinent and relevant, just like you told me a year ago. <laughs> well, so perhaps my, my answer may have been flippant, perhaps had a, a kernel of truth behind it. After contemplating these two articles, I went back to our discussion a year ago. You show in these articles that the book of Revelation gave Joseph Smith a vocabulary to express revealed theology. So perhaps we should study this text, not necessarily to learn more about what the author was saying, but rather what Joseph was saying. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I like that. I mean, there's obviously a part of me that would say you, we have to study the book of Revelation right on its own terms and see what John was saying to the first century because these problems are still problems for us today. But uh, there is something very true about trying to understand what Joseph saw 
in the book of Revelation. And I'm hard-pressed to find another biblical text that seemed to impact Joseph as much as this one did. I mean, he's all about eschatology and premillennialism, even apocalypticism. And I think he finds in John the Revelator a kindred soul of sorts, kind of like what Nephi does with Isaiah. It's almost like Joseph finds in the book of Revelation the language to express his thoughts and teachings. Again, going back to kind of the, what I mentioned earlier, this last, one of these last sermons that he gives in June of 1844, the Sermon at the Grove, when he gets up there and reads Revelation 3, and then he gives a sermon on Revelation 1-6. Revelation 1-6 is, God hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. And you look what Joseph does with that. I mean, kings and priests, queens and priestesses. He interprets God and his Father to be Heavenly Father and Heavenly Father's Father. Questions of seals on foreheads being connected with sealings and high priests, and linking that with calling and election white stones and new names, sitting on thrones in deified states. There's a lot of Nauvoo theology that Joseph seems to arrive at, or at least find the language for, from what he gets from the book of Revelation. Joseph consistently draws upon it. The Book of Mormon, the DNC, keep returning to the book of Revelation. I think there's a message there for us today. I don't think it's as simple as, here's how the end of the world is going to come. Now break the code and figure out what the symbols mean. I think the challenge is to read the book of Revelation and find ourselves in it. When God pulls back the curtain, where will we be found? What side will we be on? How will we fit into the big picture? Where will we find our hope? Where will we turn when things get crazy? In our haste to be victorious, we'll remember to be vulnerable. We'll remember the message of the Lamb. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much, Nick, for spending some time with me today. My pleasure, Laura. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.